chapters 9 through 11 last week, it, it probably opened up more questions than it answered for you. In a lot of ways, that was the intention of our time through it, to wet your whistle, as we, as we say, for chapters 9 through 11. And we're looking at these chapters in application to us today in terms of what it means in, in being a pri- the privilege of being the people of God. And moving into this of chapter 9, we look specifically at what it means in becoming God's people. And in that process of us becoming God's people and it being the mercy of the just and sovereign God. Mercy shown to us by one who is all just, meaning, meaning he can't let sin go unpunished. But thankfully he chose, as we learned from chapter 5, that he chose to pour out his wrath on his son so that he might be just and also justified, declare righteous, those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And he is sovereign. He reigns over everything, big and small. We have a a, a saying, uh, if somebody uh, returns from an experience, maybe um, uh, maybe it's understood that it was tough, it was, it was hard, maybe it was a deployment uh, in the military or, or something similar to that, and somebody might ask them, what was it like? You know, how did it go? And their response might be, well, it wasn't a pleasure cruise. And they, they're saying sarta- sarcastically, um, it was far from being something that I just wanted to keep going and just never wanted to end. Well, we actually say, you know, to someone maybe that, that's complaining just to stop and say, okay, well, buck up. Life isn't a pleasure cruise. Maybe correcting that. Maybe it's that first time that, that our teenager kind of hits, I don't know, taxes or, or um, hardship. And that can be kind of our, our curse or 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 terse way of of referring to life in that way. Well, if you will, life was intended to be a pleasure cruise, if you will. It's intended if you could picture like this luxuriant, uh, all all encompassing, everything you could think of pleasure cruise that we're intended to have in walking in relationship with our Creator. I mean, in that Creator, in that created, Creator-created relationship that Adam and Eve had with their Heavenly Father, it ticked off every box of what it meant to be made in the image of God, to have total open communication, to have total intimacy, to have a sense of adventure, to have a sense of oneness, to have a sense of belonging, to have a sense of security. All those God-given pleasure-seeking desires that we have were meant to be met in that relationship with God. It was meant to be a, a pleasure cruise. But we are a peculiar people. We are ship jumpers. We jumped ship. And the first thing that every person does when they're born is jump ship from that relationship with the Lord. 
in the sin that we are born into. It's both in our nature and in our choice. And, and I don't mean we jump from ship to ship. I mean we jump out into the water on some lie that there's a boat out there that we can swim to where we're God. Where we're the one that wants, everybody wants to be with. Where we're captain. Where we set the course. That was the original lie. You could be like God. From that point forward, everything that we get from God is mercy. It's mercy. And like a lifesaver coming out, I don't mean the candy. I mean, I mean that, that round thing that, that we don't really see that often except in decorations. But being thrown off of the ship with slack of rope going out, God in his perfect aim... When he reaches us, when he hits us with that and saves us, brings us into relationship with God at great cost to his son in his death and his resurrection, that is mercy. That is something provided for us that we had no solution to. There was no swimming back to that ship. Caught in the current with the ship floating away. Coming to him for salvation is mercy. And that's much of the theme that we're looking at in chapter 9. Chapter 9 teaches us about the mercy of God in his relationship with Israel as his people. And with us. One of the best words that I could describe chapter 9 with is sobering. Sobering. To be sober means to mark, being, uh, one of the definitions of it is marked by sedate or gravely or earnestly thoughtful character or demeanor. Something to be sobering is to tend to make one thoughtful. It's sobering to realize that God has called us out to be his children by his mercy alone. It's a, and it's mercy that we've done nothing to gain. That's the definition of mercy. That's kind of the theme verse For chapter 9 that we'll be looking at. And it's not because we drew him to us. With anything that makes man more valuable. Or more worthy to be saved by him. It should be sobering to realize. That his drawing us to himself. Is based on his mercy alone. Mercy meaning not being given what we deserve. We deserve to be swept out to sea. Never to return to that ship. Drawing us to himself based on his mercy alone rather than on anything that we have done. Or to even desire. So we're going to read through Romans 9 this morning. just thought we should do this. Last, last week we kind of breezed over chapters 9 through 11 and it before we kind of get into what we're gaining from verses 1 through 5, I just want to kind of breeze over where we're going in chapter 9 this morning. We, we first see in chapter 9 a sobering grief in following Christ. 
He's, Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And in verses 6 through 13, we'll see next week a sobering look of God's sovereign promise to His people. He continues, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then continues on to verses 14 through 29 where we see a sobering explanation of God's sovereign plan for his people. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known his riches? of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. 
For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah, as, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, you might understand here why uh, one of the recent times when Jake Lowe was here in the pulpit and he kind of was explaining uh, the gospel, which was Paul's resume to the Romans, and he went through section by section, kind of describing how the gospel played out through the book of Romans. He got to chapters 9 through 11, uh, yes, 9 through 11, and looked at you and said, and Pastor J.D. will have to explain that section to you. I wish he had uh, explained it at that time. But it's part of God's calling here is uh, your pastor to preach. This morning we're looking at all of these 29 verses here in Romans 9. At becoming God's people the mercy of the just sovereign God. And, and the key verse we're taking out of this chapter as we, as we go through it, kind of running the rest of it through this verse, is verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I, be, I believe that's key to what is being communicated here in this chapter. It's a peculiar wording here in the original language. And it's intended to define what it means to be shown mercy by God in salvation. A literal translation of the original Greek would be, Mercy is not of the one who desires, nor even runs, but of the one who is merciful. This, This verb here, depends on, isn't even in there. It's simply, mercy is not of the one who desires or even runs, Meaning it's, it doesn't come from what God sees in our hearts or what, from what God sees in our effort. But it's of the one who is of his mercy. The, but of the one who is merciful, God. We know the Apostle Paul as a man of great joy. E- even in imprisonment, even in great trials, he's a man of great joy. But he was also at the same time a man of great grief. Grief over the state of the lost souls, especially of his kinsmen, Israelites. And and if I could say this without seeming odd, I guess, we need more grieving Christians. We need more grieving Christians. Pastor Jeff kind of intended this kind of statement in one of his Facebook posts recently, which he's sitting there going, oh, no, which one was it? No. You know, in tongue-in-cheek, he writes, I was watching a family burn up in a house fire today, but I dropped my burger right into my lap. It was so frustrating to spell mustard on myself. Anyone know how to get mustard staying out of jeans? Hashtag hell is a real place. Hashtag rescue the lost. Hashtag each one reach. This is why we have Pastor Jeff here with us. But it's not Pastor Jeff's job. Right? 
We need a godly grief. They say people don't change until the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of change. And it may be that we aren't going to change. We aren't going to be on gospel mission in our relationships with other people. Seeking to reach lost people that are within our influence until their pain becomes worse to us than whatever pain we might go through in trying to communicate the gospel to them, in trying to just love that door open, that we would have the platform to speak. Trying to reach them or partnering with God in throwing them a life-saving knowledge of the gospel. A life-saving knowledge of the fact that none of us in our own personal righteousness can have a relationship with God. We stand before Him as sinners, having jumped ship, swept away, no capability of swimming back. But God, in His grace and His mercy, He gave us Christ as a sacrifice. That in His almighty person is a sacrifice capable of being effective for every person on the planet. In his eternal nature, his sacrifice is capable of being effective for every person that has ever lived. And his resurrection proved the veracity, proved the power of his sacrifice to count for us. And in a person simply bowing their knee and saying, I need Christ's sacrifice to count for me and accepting a relationship with God through that they can walk with Christ as their savior walk with God as their father instead of their judge that is what we need to be offering to people to love them into a place where they're open to hearing that you might see in your in your notes there I originally said that we, we need more sad Christians. And, and that's, I, that's a poor use of words, I think. Because sad, I think, represents a debilitating place emotionally. We are not to be debilitated by anything in this life that keeps us from being able to share the hope of Christ with other people. A better term, as you see, I think, is grief which means a deep sorrow, especially that caused by someone's death. And, you know, everyone that we walk around with on the face of this earth has been cursed with death, both physically but spiritually as well. We should have a sobering grief. Just feel free to correct the bulletin there. Um, Changing sad to grief. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This may have been necessitated with Paul explaining this 
to, to the Jewish believers in Rome regarding uh, their kinsmen, regarding his kinsmen. He had left Judaism and was, was um, God's apostle to the Gentiles. And it, and it would have been easy to ask the question, is he getting some sort of sick joy out of knowing that his kinsmen, the Jews, missed their Messiah, but he found him, or, or the Messiah found Paul on that road to Damascus? I think that's why he might go so abundantly to tell them, this is really where my heart is. He says, I'm telling the truth as I'm in Christ who is the truth. I'm not lying. As, as I'm filled with the Holy Spirit who would convict me if I were. Paul's model, he models for us what should be our constant state regarding the loss. The term sorrow implies a sense of loss or a sense of remorse. He has an un, unceasing anguish, a consuming grief whenever it's thought about. I'm not saying that we should be grieving all the time. I'm saying that we should be grieved when we think of all those who live separated from God. And the fact is the state that a person dies in is the state that they stay in for eternity. That's why Hebrews tells us, it is appointed once for man to die and then to face judgment. There's no, okay, now that you've seen heaven, now that you're standing at the pearly gates, now what's your choice? It is appointed once for man to die and then to face judgment judgment. The state that we die in, whether in relationship with God through his grace or separated with God by the effect of our sin, the state that we die in is the state that we stay in for eternity. We should have a sobering grief first over people's eternity being at stake. This is what Paul is referring to when he says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. As the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, my brothers, my own flesh and blood. To be accursed is, is the Greek term anathema. It's a kind of formal curse which excommunicates a person from relationship. Paul is referring to the fact that all of his kinsmen, all people who have not bowed the knee to Christ as their Savior, are accursed. He wishes he could take their place. He wishes that he could take his people's place if it meant that they wouldn't be accursed. In other words, those who don't trust in Christ for salvation remain cursed He's not being overly dramatic here, okay? He's, obviously, people wouldn't be able to take someone else's curse for them. Moses asked the same thing in Exodus 32, 32 about his people, the same people Israel. He says, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if now please blot me out of your book that you have written. Meaning, if you would do this, Blot me out instead of them. And God's response is basically, I will deal with each person according to their own sin. 
But thank God he dealt that punishment. He dealt, he delivered that curse on Christ. We're reminding Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ has already removed the curse, taking it on himself. And I think that's doubly grieving. That everyone's salvation sits like a gift under a Christmas tree, having been bought, paid for, and just waits for that person to open it up and accept it. Full redemption of God's world will be when there is no one or nothing remaining that is cursed. We're told in Revelation 22, verse 3, that that eternal state will be described as no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Sadly, there will be no more or anyone accursed there. And I say this soberly. Because all those who remain cursed for eternity will have been thrown into the lake of fire, as we're told about in the book of Revelation. And that should grieve us to the point of action. It should grieve us to the point of action. I love the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where as a part of this final battle, Aslan disappears with Lucy and Susan. And they go to the witch's castle. And they, and they, they land in the courtyard of the witch's castle. And Lucy looks around and she, she's humored at first by all these statues standing around in, in all sorts of dramatic poses. But, but what has happened is that Anyone that the white witch's scepter had touched, it had been their demise. They were cursed. They were turned to stone. They were turned to a stone statue forever. And this courtyard of the white witch that they landed into was her trophy room. Her, in fact, her entire castle was just littered with these trophies of animals and people and, and centaurs and giants as her personal collection of cursed individuals. But what does Aslan do? He goes from one to the next, breathing on them and bringing them back to life. Removing the curse of a stone heart and a stone body and bringing them to life again. And he doesn't, doesn't just bring them back to life. He's amassing an army for himself to go back and to fight the white witch with. That's the picture of Christ. 
But it doesn't stop there. You see, one of these statues is Lucy's friend, Mr. Tumnus. And Lucy searches the castle to find her friend so that Aslan could come and breathe life on this cursed person. Actually, a person with like goat legs and stuff like that and horns coming out of his head. But, you know, that's Narnia. Let me ask you, who's your Mr. Tumnus? Who is your friend who is cursed? Which it seems like they they just have a heart of stone. All they need is for God to breathe on them. As we're told in Jeremiah, the prayer that is said, the prophecy that's given, that God wants to take a, a heart of stone and remove it and to give someone a heart of flesh. That is a repentant heart that would turn to him and see him as their savior. Who is your Mr. Tumnus? Can you think of anyone that you're grieved by their being under the curse of death? Are you praying for them to come to Christ? Are you looking for an opportunity to share the gospel with them? It can be as simple. We've talked about these ways before. It can be as simple as asking them three questions. Where did all this come from? Where do you think everything came from? What's wrong with it? What do you think the answer is? In the course of the conversation, maybe they'll allow you to share what you believe about those things. That we were created to have a relationship with God. That sin is the problem. That Christ is the answer. Explaining the gospel is as simple as remembering something like the gospel acronym. <clears throat> that just follows us. G-O-S-P-E-L. God created us to be in relationship with him. Our sin separated us from God. Sin cannot be paid for by good deeds. And paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. And everyone that trusts in Christ as their Savior has eternal life. And that eternal life, that life eternal, starts now and lasts for forever. You know, I moved the chairs this week. There's a reason for that. And I, I don't mean to trap you in something, but I ask you, were you more disgruntled this morning over your chair being moved than you are about the lost? Did it grieve you more that your chair was in a different spot? Also, we should have a sobering grief over people's blindness despite knowledge. We'll see as it talks about uh, Israel, they had a faith, but not according to knowledge. This is a sobering grief that we should have over people's blindness despite knowledge. He writes, they are Israelites. 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. When he talks about them being Israel's, do you know where that comes from? It comes from Jacob, grandson of Abraham, being given the name Israel in place of his name Jacob. It means one who has who strives with or presently walks with or even wrestles with God. This was their very name. And it goes through terms describing this special relationship between Israel and God their father. And these terms are also come up in chapter 8 describing our relationship as the people of God, with God as well. They're adopted as his children, as a special mercy. And this was made of, uh, uh, official as his people rather than just this one family. It was made official as their, his people when he brought them up out of Egypt as his son. They were led by the glory of the Lord through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And the glory of the Lord resided with them wherever they stopped. God made covenants of love and commitment and fidelity to make them his special people. And Israel was given a law that allowed them to live in relationship with him as their king in a theocracy. They were prescribed how to worship God through the tabernacle and the temple in which all of this was intended to point them to the coming Messiah, to point them to Christ and his sacrifice. And through them was promised the coming Messiah, allowing God to make salvation available to all people by Jesus coming through them. And some of the most important men of ancient times are ancestors of Israelites, known as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we'll get into this more in chapter 9. But most importantly, Jesus Christ, the Messiah for the whole world, God himself, was ushered into the world through Israel. God over all, he's called here. Over every person both Jew and Gentile. And their very culture, their history, their laws, their tradition screamed Jesus Christ. And they missed it. There was a Crawfordsville man who was traveling the U.S. and he ran into an agnostic And from that discussion, even though he he wasn't especially close to Christ, he was disappointed about his inability to answer the man's challenges about a biblical view of God. It led him to solve his wavering faith and his lack of answers. He dove into a study of the scriptures. He dove into researching the life and times of Jesus 
And he himself came to what he called a conviction amounting to absolute belief in God and the divinity of Christ. And the result of his research, he called Ben-Hur, a tale of the Christ. A tale of the Christ. It was adapted into a stage play in 1899. It became movie productions four times in 1907, 1925, 1959, and also in 2016. Lou Wallace began his work from frustration with a godless fellow and a feeling of inadequacy. And he ended up having a greater potential for reaching people for Christ than he had ever imagined. And it was begun by a fledgling faith seeking to be able to give better answers. You know him, and the story of Ben-Hur is Crawfordsville's claim to fame. A man and a book that exalts Jesus Christ as our only hope for salvation. Yet how many in Crawfordsville trust in Christ as their only hope of salvation? Like Paul's grief over the blindness of Israel as a privileged, privileged people. Doesn't America, and on a smaller scale, Crawfordsville, just grieve you? I mean, God's truth and his providence is in the very fiber of, and the, of the founding and of our, our existence as a nation. Do you ever feel like it just seems like your neighbors couldn't be any nearer to the truth? How many churches do they drive by? How many little statements on church signs do they read? How many Christmas carols do they hear being sung? How much benefit do they receive from the laws that they live by based on biblical principles? But still, they just seem like They couldn't be more lost. So what can we be doing? We should take take a page from the Apostle Paul's book and not be passive. We should be actively looking for opportunities. We should be actively praying. We need more grieving Christians. So how does the rubber meet the road? When it comes to salvation being by God's mercy and our longing to see people saved. First, we will, we're going to need to be ready to share as best benefits a person. Now, that does, this doesn't mean that we change the message of the gospel. Something I've observed recently, once again, in the parable of the sower. Even though Christ is describing this seed as being three times ineffective and one time fruitful, he didn't change the seed. The sower keeps sowing the same seed of the word of God. We don't change the gospel. But we can change our approach. 
is how we best love people, maybe. I mean, think of Paul here in Athens, even as he talks about God's drawing people to himself, God's mercy being based on nothing that we can do or desire to draw him to us. Still, he presents the gospel to the people of Athens. Saying, describing God, he says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they, may, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. He was speaking their language of God. And yet, when He would seek to reach the Jews, He would go into the synagogue and it says that He would reason with them from the law and from the prophets. Because in loving them, He was giving them the opportunity that maybe they needed to come to Christ. We're discussing, discussing a next Sunday seminar simply on how to share the gospel with people, how to be ready. But folks, it's not about getting more education. It's about being ready to take advantage of the opportunity. We're talking about how we can learn more about our neighbors in Newmarket, Ladoga, Waveland, Lake Holiday, and Crawfordsville. How can, how can they best understand our love for them and open the door to sharing the gospel with them? But also we should be praying. God's not bringing all this together by accident. I didn't plan to be preaching on Romans 9, 1 through 11, and the fact that we should be grieved by the lost. And then say, it'd be really great if somebody would move in Josh Carpenter's heart that we'd be praying for the lost. It's so neat for us as leadership to kind of be at 1,500 feet and look at the ministry at Harvest and see God converge different things at the same time. That's one of the biggest things that we look for to pull the trigger on things. And I can remember sharing with, with Kelly, my wife, sharing with, with uh, Jeff uh, six months ago, saying, I don't believe that God is going to bless us with the opportunity to bring people to Christ if we are not praying more. And this is the time. This is the time to be lifting people up to Christ for salvation, for Him to shed His mercy on them, for Him to breathe on them and give them a tender heart toward the gospel and share. And I just want to reiterate a couple things. This is not for your aunt's neighbor's daughter to come to Christ. It's for those that you are looking for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Maybe by email. Maybe by talking at the mailbox. Maybe over Christmas dinner. But you're looking for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Or maybe to bring something to that we'll have for you to be able to bring them to. We need more grieving Christians. 
grieving with the joy of knowing there's so much more. Let's bow our heads.